Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Good morning. Ah, good stuff. Good to make it to Sunday, especially after a football day like yesterday. Question for you, what makes you glad? Ah, there you go. See, there, the, the, there is a good thing. Like, there are days when you could say, go Pokes, and you're excited. There's days when you aren't, aren't quite excited, as excited as other days. And uh, there's a danger in putting your joy in the hands of 18 to 22-year-old boys running around on a 100-yard piece of grass with a really strange-looking piece of leather. And if that's where you pin your hopes, uh, you may find that they vary and go up and down um, based on any given Saturday. And that's true of other things in life, too. If your hopes are pinned on your finances, then your joy is going to go up and down based on your investments. If your hopes built upon your family, then your joys are going to rise and fall with the happiness and the health of your family. If your joy is tied to your sex life, it's going to go with the ups and downs of every new experience that you enjoy or do not enjoy. So your gladness ultimately needs to be tied to something um, that, is, that is profoundly wonderful, uh, that, that is profoundly stable, that offers you hope and security that doesn't vary with any given Saturday, uh, something that can help sustain you in the midst of all of life. So uh, here's what we want to look at today. And a question I've got for you is, is the presence of God the thing that makes you glad? Is, is being in a relationship with the God of the universe the thing that ultimately you've pinned your hopes upon, that brings you joy, that gives you gladness? Because you'll only be truly glad in God when you realize the extent to which he went to have a relationship with you. When you understand the extent to which he, he went to bring about the flourishing of humanity through the redemption and forgiveness of sins that comes through his son and through the presence of his spirit in our lives and through his, the promise of his return. So we're going to look at Acts 2. We're in this series and we're jumping into a, a long chunk here in Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at, uh, we're actually going to have a sermon on a sermon, which is kind of weird. Uh, part of me always wonders, like, maybe we should just read Peter's sermon and sit down and call it a day. But I'm a preacher, so I gotta, I'm going to riff on Peter's sermon a little bit. We're gonna, uh, but Peter's going to show us what just happened in Acts 2. In Acts two. Then he's going to show us why it happened. And then he's going to show us why it makes a difference for you and for me. And so as we jump in here, it's important to remember kind of what happened in Acts 1 and, uh, 1 and 2 so far. In Acts 1, Jesus was present with the disciples, the resurrected Jesus. So after he died on the cross, went to a tomb, kicked uh, the door open and walked out uh, victorious over sin and over death. He, the resurrected Jesus appeared to over 500 people over a period of about 400 days, and he told the disciples to wait, and the Spirit would come, and then they would go throughout the, to the ends of the earth to be 
witnesses of Christ. And so the disciples were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And uh, this 120 disciples of Jesus uh, were gathered together. And the Spirit, it says, descended upon them like tongues of fire that spread out and dropped upon their heads. And then they rushed out into the streets and they immediately began to proclaim the wonders of God and testified how good God was and everything Jesus did. But they did it in languages they did not know so that all the people from all that different area heard them speaking in language which they had never gone to school to learn. And it was a miraculous event. And it's right on the heels of that that people that were watching this whole thing happen, some of them uh, scratched their head and said, what is this thing that happened? And other people began to mock them and said, ah, you know, maybe you guys tip back a little bit uh, a little early in the morning or a little drunk and something kind of crazy is going on that people didn't understand. And it's right in that moment that Peter stands up in the section we're going to look at today and Peter begins to speak. And this is going to be kind of a long chunk, but I want you to imagine what it would be like to be in that place to be in the city of Jerusalem where people have gathered to celebrate a religious festival and thousands or tens of thousands of people have come to town and the, the Spirit descended in fire and they heard this loud rushing wind that shook the walls of everything around there. And when they experienced that, these men rushed out into the street. And what we find is that as this began to get everyone's attention, that there were, uh, the, see, Right there, that was just that was queued up for you. Uh, y'all, y'all fall asleep. We're going to do that again. Uh, you guys got that back there. We're going to we're going to pound on there if we need to, right? Um, but what happened is they did is that thousands of people began to gather, and so literally thousands of people are listening. And Peter stood up and began to preach or share share the good news. So verse fourteen of chapter two says this: But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the hundreds of people that have gathered around, the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, that in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor, smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, and my flesh will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and he's still in his tomb to this day. 
Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God has sworn an oath to him that he, one of his descendants would be set upon the throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus, that he was one not abandoned to Hades, and that his flesh did not see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we, of all that, we are witnesses. Therefore, being exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says to himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added to their number that day. 3,000 souls. It's a pretty amazing section of Scripture. It's a pretty amazing uh, situation that you can see. And it's, it's interesting, Peter kind of starts with a good sense of humor and he addresses the hecklers in the crowd. And uh, when he says it's the third hour of the day, what he's saying is uh, this is like 9 a.m., and the, the, the people in that day, they didn't even eat their first meal till 10 a.m. So Peter starts off and goes, look, these, we're not drunk. Like, we, we, haven't even had a, we haven't had a meal yet. We definitely haven't tipped back with some cheap wine early in the morning. That's not what's going down. Let me explain to you exactly what's going on. And Peter's going to give the very first gospel presentation we have recorded after the resurrection of Jesus. And so this is incredibly insightful for us. When we understand what did the disciples, what did the early church, what did the first followers of Jesus understand about all the things that had just happened? Uh, this is an incredibly important passage for, under, for us to understand this. And Peter's going to actually go back and he quotes three different passages from the Old Testament because he wants people to understand this wasn't some random occurrence. This wasn't some surprise event. This was actually something God ordained and promised from, from long ago. And so this is a fulfillment of prophecy, thousands of years old, and everything went according to God's plan. But Peter himself didn't understand that just a few days prior to this, right? Remember what happened when Jesus said, uh, Peter, you're going to deny me? And Peter said, no way. And then Peter did three times in a row because Peter did not understand. He thought the Messiah, the deliverer, the rescuer was going to come and be seated on the throne and eradicate all of Israel's enemies. And they were going to have a political victory in that moment. And so when Jesus went to a cross and when he saw his arm, his, his wrist pierced, and his ankles pierced, and his side pierced, and he saw him bleed out, and saw him pull off and be put in a tomb. Peter panicked. But now, after seeing the resurrected Lord, and after Jesus came back and taught them about the kingdom of God over 40 days, and explained everything that happened, and walked through all the Old Testament, Peter understands, and it's like the shackles on his eyes have come off, and now he sees, and it's like all these things from the Old Testament begin to line up and point to exactly what's happening in this moment. And so Peter stands up as a leader of the disciples and begins to explain 
And really, this is one of the most theologically rich statements in our Bible. It's rich in Christology and soteriology and pneumatology. So the understanding of the Spirit, the understanding of our salvation, the understanding of who Christ is. And Peter begins to explain it all to them. But he starts off and he start, he's dealing with this whole thing that happened when the Spirit came down and they heard the rush of wind and they heard they saw the tongues of fire and they began to speak in tongues. And Peter starts off with that and says, let me just ex- tell you what just happened. And he goes back and he looks at this Old Testament passage in Joel. It's a really mysterious passage that has a lot of apocalyptic imagery. And the reason he points back to that was because it prophesied the Spirit's coming. And you notice what it says, uh, that, that it talks about kind of all these different things that happen. It speaks ultimately of the day of the Lord. And part of what Peter's saying is, that, that the Spirit's coming is a sign that we have entered into what the Bible calls the last days. So this is the beginning of the end. And the last days, actually, we've, we, we now know last for a lot longer than what they even anticipated. But all of that kind of begins a, a new era of God's work in the people of God. And it's going to culminate in what they call the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the day of judgment, uh, when all people will stand and give account for their lives. And so that's what all this points to, and especially the kind of apocalyptic imagery that you see here is saying that there's something cosmic and decisive that just happened that changed all of human life. But verse 17, you really see kind of the heartbeat of the main thing that happened. It says, in the last days it will be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on, on whom? On all flesh. And then it's going to break in. This is the primary point of what Joel is saying, is that God is giving his spirit, and it's not going to be given in just a temporary sort of thing to just a few people, but it's going to be poured out on all people. And it's interesting in the Old Testament, there was never a time where the spirit didn't exist. The spirit is eternal, and so the spirit has always existed. We talked about that some last week. But but what you saw in the Old Testament was that the spirit's involvement in the world tended to appear more sporadically. And so the the Spirit would come down upon uh, select individuals to empower them to accomplish specific tasks. And so prophets, priests, and kings, or or the judges, or someone, it said even when they built the temple, that the people who built it were filled with the Spirit so they could accomplish the work which God had given, given them. But it seemed as though the Spirit sort of came and went and descended upon not everyone, but just a few. And so what's, what Peter is saying is that this is a fulfillment of prophecy that the baptism and filling of the Spirit that takes place in the book of Acts is a monumentally new and incredible occurrence. This is the beginning of a whole new era for God's people. It's why Peter quotes these verses and he wants us to understand. But the primary focus is that God is pouring out a Spirit on all people. You notice the different categories of people. It talks about all different kinds of people, Right? And so what you see is that the Spirit is going to send upon people regardless of their age, their gender, their social status, uh, or their spiritual, uh, their, their spiritual kind of um, accomplishment or, or ethnic background. It says that, that it's open with respect to gender. It pours out on your sons and your daughters equally. Uh, you did see in the Old Testament that there, there were women like, uh, like, like Anna or Esther or ha- Abigail or Hannah or Sarah or Miriam or Deborah. They were filled with the Spirit. You saw the, the same was true uh, of, of men. But here it's going to say that all um, your sons and your daughters will experience the Spirit. So the Spirit descends upon all men and all women in this kind of universal endowment. But it also happens uh, that the Spirit is open with respect to age. You notice that it says young dudes and old guns uh, all are filled with the Spirit. And so there, there's a pouring out of, 
uh, apart from age. But then you notice it goes on and it says that my male servants and female servants, and it's saying that this is across uh, levels of social strata, that this is not just for the elites, it's not just for those who have arrived, it's not just for those who seemingly uh, deserve it based on their accomplishments in the world or because of their pedigree, but it ultimately falls upon all those. So even those in the lowest classes will be blessed with the Spirit of God. It's interesting that, that Peter mentions two specific groups that in that day were often overlooked servants and females. And it says that spirit would be poured out upon all without regard to gender, to social status, to ethnicity, uh, but that they will all experience God's presence. Uh, One interesting note, you notice there where it says female servants and male servants, whose servants are they? It says my servants. It's fascinating to me that of this group, uh, that, that God specifically calls them mine, as though he, he tends to favor those that are often dis, uh, overlooked or discarded. Um, but you notice what, what the point of this whole thing is? That God says, I'm going to pour out my presence, my spirit, upon everyone without restriction. There's not going to be any limits to what that is. I think uh, that's why when, uh, just incidentally, I think that's why we immediately can feel connection with believers all around the world. Have you ever had this experience that you go to another city and you get to worship with a group of people and you go, man, these are my people. Or you go to another part of the world and you get to interact with some people and all of a sudden you realize, man, they're, they're just I, I sense God's presence here amongst these people. Uh, it's, it's why, you know, in my own experience, you know, I, I cut my teeth uh, preaching in a homeless shelter. I would go on Tuesday nights when I was in seminary, and I'd go down to a homeless shelter and, um, and, and wander in and begin just to preach to these guys, and uh, they, they, were, they, they had to come. Like, if they wanted to eat, they had to sit and listen to me, uh, which, was, which was brutal punishment, right? It was a, but they would come, and they would sit there, and it was always interesting to me because these guys, half of them would be snoring, uh, kind of like y'all, and they'd be kind of doing this, but if you got going and if you were good enough, they'd start to look up. They'd start to do this. And you just see it as you go, and they'd start coming. But you know, every time I got to preach there, there was, a, there was a handful of guys that I'd look at, and I'd go, man, that dude's tracking. That, dude's, that guy's following me. That guy's with me. And I knew it's because they had the Spirit of God. And there was something, even in, in their state, that united the two of us across lots of different boundaries. And it's why um, whenever I can go to, uh, whenever I went to India, and began to teach there that a guy came in and sat down with me and began to just tear up and said, I just want to tell you my story. And he began to tell me how he had snuck across the border from China into India, and in the midst of that, had come to learn the Bible because at 18, 19, he had walked through mountain villages as a pastor of these little churches, and he just realized, I need to know more. And so he went and came to learn. But in that, his father had passed away, and he was unable to go to be at his father's funeral. And he just said, I long to go back to my people to preach the word of God. It was the spirit of God in him that made him connected to me and want to share his story. It's why I could sit down with refugees in the city of Dallas in an apartment complex and, and hear them weep over their experiences and tell me how God carried them through tough times and brought them to this place and how they feel connected to us even across, even though their, their true home is across the world. It's why um, I could sit with a friend who uh, suffered in, in Rwanda and lost 15% of his congregation in the Rwanda massacres. And as he began to weep, and I began to tear up as he talked to me about the price that's on his head if he goes back. Because 
These are all people that are created in the image of God and they're filled with the Spirit of God. And when you interact with those who have the same Spirit that you do in you, and there's something that just leaps across from you to them and connects the two of you and brings you in unison, it's a beautiful thing. In verse 21, you notice what he says. Um, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why does he talk about being saved? Because there is a day of judgment. There is a day when all these cosmic things are going to come to fruition and the day of the Lord will come and there is a judgment uh, that, that everyone will have to give an account. Who are those that are saved? They're not those who get their lives all together. It's those who cry out for help to a Savior and a Rescuer and they lean upon the name of the Lord. Uh, now, what prevents people from being saved? It's only unbelief. So here you see what Peter's doing. Uh, Peter's saying when the Spirit came down and, and you heard the, the rushing wind and you saw the tongue, you saw the, the flames that descended upon us and the Spirit rested on everyone and they began to speak in other languages they didn't understand. Why did that happen? Peter's saying it's because God said that in the last days when, when, when His work was being accomplished that the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. And so this is evidence that God's plan is being worked out. Now, why did it happen? That's, that's what was happening. Why did it happen? Verses 22 to 35, we see that. He says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. He begins to point to four specific accomplishments of Jesus. What were the things that Jesus did and that, that we need to understand about what he accomplished? Verse 22, men of Israel, these, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Jesus performed lots of miracles. What he's saying is, look, you guys all saw it. He's talking to people in Jerusalem, right? Uh, this was well known in Jerusalem. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus later talked about everything that was said about Jesus. He says that it's well known that this guy did crazy stuff. And they didn't have a good explanation for it. They just said, everything we know about Jesus is there was always crazy stuff that was going down when this guy was around. And what Peter's saying is he's looking at people in Jerusalem who had lived amongst Jesus and they witnessed these things and said, look, you yourselves know exactly what happened. The blind guy that we watched, that we used to walk past at the, at the, um, at the city gates, um, he now sees. The lame dude that sat there at the, at the pool, yeah, and we walked past him day after day after day and he could never walk. Like that dude dances a jig now. Because Jesus showed up and made his lame, his lame legs walk. We saw the things that he did. So the first thing that Jesus accomplished was he performed all these, ra these, these crazy miracles. In fact, uh, you even see in the, in, the, in the Gospels that the people who, who rejected Jesus and didn't believe, they were like, oh, he's a magician or he's doing this through some kind of demonic influence. They didn't deny that he did something. They just denied the source of it. And they accused him falsely of wrongdoing. So the first thing is he performed miracles. The second thing we see is that Christ died a sacrificial death. Verse 23, uh, this Jesus. I love the fact that uh, Peter constantly um, is telling the story and he looks out at these people that walked the streets with Jesus and said, this Jesus, the one you know about, because they'd seen him, they'd heard of him, they'd witnessed it. This Jesus um, delivered up, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Now, it's interesting that in talking about Jesus' sacrificial death, you see this interesting kind of tension that takes place there. Um, who was it that killed Jesus? What? He says, you did. 
you crucified him. He's talking to the people there in Jerusalem. He says, you're the ones who did it. Now, they, they, they weren't the ones that actually did it. He said it was by the hands of lawless men, meaning the Romans. But it was actually them that sat by and watched as it happened. But you notice there's this tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility here. Because he says, you did it, but it wasn't, it wasn't apart from God, God's plan. This was still according to God's plan. He says, you delivered him up, you crucified him, you killed him, but... This was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Whenever you look at the scriptures, one of the great conundrums we have is understanding God's, God's predestining power and God's sovereignty over all things. What he's saying is when Jesus, this Messiah, became a suffering servant and he laid down his life, that wasn't an accident. That wasn't something that Jesus' that Jesus' life was taken from him. Jesus gave his life according to the plan of God as a suffering servant in order to bring about the salvation of all peoples. And so God's plan was always for the Messiah to die. And God's plan was always, um, even, even, if, even if Peter himself didn't understand that early on, Peter now saw this was what God intended, was that his son would die in order to bring about salvation. Now, why we know that's not a problem is because verses 24 uh, start to tell us about Jesus' resurrection. Notice what it says in 24. Therefore God raised him up. Uh, This is the resurrection. That though Jesus laid down his life, that he didn't stay in the tomb, but he was raised up. And he gives us this interesting kind of a mixed metaphor in in 24 and beyond. He says, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Friends, that ought to be a, a verse that just causes your soul to sing. That Jesus was wrapped with the cords of death, and death wraps its, its ropes around Jesus and tries to pull him down, but, it, but, but they were not strong enough to hold him back. And it takes this interesting metaphor. It, starts, it talks about the, the birth pangs of death, which is a weird, weird combination, right? Because death, we think of the end of life. Birth is what? It's the beginning of life. And he says that what, what, what looked like the end of life where, where death was going to pull Jesus down actually became the birth of new life that emerged out of that. And so that pain of death became like the birth pains that delivered new life to him. That's a beautiful picture of what Peter wants us to understand that happened. And that's why he goes and he quotes Psalm 16. He says, I saw the Lord always before me, and he's at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Meaning, if the dude that conquers sin and death and walks out of the grave is by your side, what do you have to fear? Nothing at all. I mean, if, if, if a guy that, that, that death could not hold back is at your side, then, then there's nothing that should make your knees knock. There's nothing that should cause you to shake. And so he says, therefore, I will not be shaken. Friends, are there things in life that make you worry? Are there things that make you angry at the injustice? Are there things that make you uncertain? He's saying you can bring those things to the Lord and your knees will no longer shake because the one who's by your side has the keys of life and death and nothing can hold him back. So he says, the Lord was before me and I was full of gladness in his presence. So verse uh, 26, he says, you notice kind of this holistic approach of, of what he says. Um, Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh, um, my flesh will, uh, will rejoice. My heart was glad meaning that's the inner being, right? 
My, my tongue will rejoice. That's the external. My flesh will also dwell in hope, meaning his whole body. And so there's nothing about who he is that's not impacted by what Jesus did and accomplished for him. Friends, that's good news. That means that there's nothing, there's no worry that's too big for Jesus to take care of for us. And it's why he says, therefore I may say to you with confidence that we can, that we can be filled with confidence about what it is that Jesus has done and live with a joyful confidence that he will deliver us just as he delivered Jesus. Now it's interesting, he does this thing about David. He's saying, look, this psalm that everyone thought pointed to David actually didn't point to David because uh, David died, David's in a grave, and we know where it is, and he's still there. Like Jesus, David's body is still, is still rotting, it's still decaying. This wasn't referring to David. This is referring to Jesus, and his body could not be, could not be contained in a tomb. And so he walked out victorious over sin and death. This ultimately was, a, was looking to not David, but a descendant of David. You go back to 2 Samuel 7, you see the, the Davidic covenant, a promise that God says, one of, your, one of your descendants will sit upon the throne. Jesus was a descendant of David. And what Peter is saying is that all of that pointed to this moment when Jesus would walk out of the tomb and be resurrected. Now, verses 32 to 35, we see how this plays out, that Jesus was vindicated. Uh, that Jesus, the, the falsely accused, that Jesus, the rejected, that Jesus, the, that was rebelled against, that Jesus was beaten, whipped, and killed, uh, that ultimately he was vindicated and exalted. In verse 32, it says, This Jesus God raised up, and we are of that we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are now seeing and hearing. And so do you catch the flow of everything that's going on? Jesus came, he lived a life, he was rejected by men, he died. He was put in a tomb, he rose again, and then he was ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he sits as the one who's victorious, ruling over all things, and as the one who sits in the place of power, exalted, the, the, place, the seat of authority. And it's why he says that, that he'll sit there until I make all of your enemies a footstool. He actually quotes Psalm 110, which becomes the primary uh, verse that, the, that throughout the whole New Testament gets quoted over and over and over, pointing back to the Lordship of Christ. And it's because he has the place of authority. He says, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. We, there, is no, there is no debate about whether we will kneel before him one day. It's just whether we're going to kneel in submission under, under judgment to him, or if we are going to kneel in worship and adoration of the one who saved us. But all will one day kneel, and all that remains is to determine how we will do that. He will either be the stumbling stone over which you trip and fall, or he will be the building block on which you are made into a mighty fortress forevermore. But it's this Jesus whom God raised up that is the one. Now, how, how can a Messiah deliver a rescue or a king uh, reign forever if he's died and is buried? Well, only if he walks out of the tomb and if he's exalted. But that one can. You notice he says that he is vindicated, that we can know for certain that God has made him what? Both Lord and Christ. To be Christ is to be the Savior, the Rescuer, the Deliverer, the Messiah. To be Lord is to be the King, the Sovereign, the Ruler over all. And it's interesting that Peter here puts Lord first. He says Jesus, through his resurrection and his exaltation, has, been, has earned the right to be Lord and King and Sovereign over all. He is both Lord and, rescuer, and Savior, Rescuer and King. 
but you notice what it was that uh, that they they had to do with Christ. It says, "Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." So think about that if you are if you are one of the people in that in that audience. If you're there and you're listening to the story and you're witnessing all the things that happened and the Spirit has descended and you've heard them proclaim God's name and uh, God's goodness in, in their own languages and, and all of a sudden Peter stands up and begins to give this message. And he says, and, and, he, and he, he goes back to the Old Testament and he lays out Joel and he lays out Psalm 16 and he lays out Psalm 110. He says, all of the things that were in the Old Testament are pointing to Jesus in this moment. And this proves that Jesus was Lord in Christ. He was attested by many miracles. He laid down his life willingly and sacrificially upon the cross. He was exalted through the resurrection, and he's ascended to heaven. And we know this to be true because we are all witnesses of all those things. Yet, you crucified him. You rejected him. You killed him. You spit upon him. You stood by and watched, and you screamed in the crowd, crucify him, crucify him. And what what happens to them when they hear this message? Verse 36. I'm sorry, verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they looked to Peter and said, what shall we do? When it says they were cut to the heart, it means that they were pierced, as though a knife penetrated the flesh of their heart. The heart in Scripture is the deepest core of who they are. And so they were brokenhearted and convicted. It speaks of a sharp stab or a pain. It's often associated with deep emotions. It's saying is that when they heard this and all of a sudden the light bulbs came on, they were rocked to the very core of who they were. And they, they looked to Peter and they go, well, what then can we do? What hope is there for us? Like we saw him. We saw the miracles. We saw him on the cross. We, we, we heard that he had resurrected and we did nothing. What hope can there possibly be for us? And you feel, you're meant to feel the panic of what's happening here in their hearts. Friends, can I tell you this? The goal though is not to be sad. You know who else was sad amongst at this time? Judas was sad. Judas had betrayed Jesus. Judas had sold Jesus out for 20 pieces of silver. Uh, Judas had given him over in order that he might might be killed. And yet Judas, in his sorrow, didn't turn to, to Jesus. He turned to despair and ultimately laid down his life out of out of misery and as he as he spiraled into a place of great despair and he poured himself out on a field that he purchased with the money that he sold Jesus out to redeem. So the point is not to be sad. The point is to learn to be glad in God. It's interesting in 2 Corinthians 7, it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, Judas had worldly grief, and it led him to death and despair. But there is a godly grief. There is a a sadness, a being cut to the heart that doesn't leave you in sadness, but ultimately leads you to a place of gladness. And turns you in a different direction. So what does Peter say to them? He says, how should they respond? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far from God. Everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. There's good news when you're cut to the heart. 
with the truth of who Jesus is and the fact that you need a Savior. But to realize that's the only place to, to the ultimate gladness is through being cut to the heart. That, that somehow it's being cut to the heart that moves us or prepares us in a place to receive the gladness of God's presence and an understanding of the joy that is ours. And in verse 40, he intensifies the call. He says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, he's not saying save yourselves like become more moral, become more religious, uh, work yourself up, do better, be good. Uh, you know, get yourself on the ledger and as long as you're better than the bad people over here, then you're going to measure out. He's not saying save yourself in that sense. How do you save yourself? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But you cry out for help. And this is why ultimately we need to repent is because uh, there is a judgment that will come. And ultimately it's only those who are saved, who, who cry out to him for help that are saved. Now, Peter gives us two evidences that are visible evidences or demonstrations of of what saving faith looks like. The first is repentance. To repent is to turn around. Uh, Sometimes we we think of it as change your mind, but it's not just like you mentally get a better idea or a clearer picture. It's meant that your life is running this way and you're going in one direction and you turn around and you go in a different direction. To repent is to turn the course of your life around. And elsewhere in Scripture, it's, it's even called and said to be a gift from God. So the first visible demonstration that we're to have when we turn to Jesus, when we cry out for help, is that we're to repent. We're to acknowledge that we all ran in our own direction. And it didn't lead us to a place of ultimate gladness. So we turn and we look to Christ. And we do that also through baptism. Baptism is an expression of faith. That we wash ourselves in the baptismal waters, which means the old self dies and the new self lives. In baptism, we align ourselves or give our allegiance to Jesus as the one who's our rescuer and our king. So we see these two visible demonstrations of what saving faith looks like. We also see these, these results or the promised gifts of, what, of those who have saving faith. The first is what? Forgiveness of sin. That when we have saving faith and we, when we turn from going our own way and we turn to Jesus, we experience the forgiveness of sin. There is no more, there is no more shame. There is no more guilt. There is no more condemnation for those who have been saved by the Savior, Christ. So we receive, receive cleansing and forgiveness of sin that prepares us for the presence of God. The second is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So forgiveness comes when we have saving faith. And the Spirit comes upon all. So we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See how they're identifying their need for a Savior and His worthiness to be the Savior and the Lord of their lives brings about these good things. It brings about a visible demonstration of repentance and they go and be baptized. And it brings about the forgiveness of sins and the presence of the Spirit in their life. This is the gospel that Peter is preaching. In the core of the gospel, it's interesting. The, the core of the gospel, we oftentimes think about, think about mainly in the, just the first element of that. That, well, if we trust the gospel, we'll experience forgiveness of sins. You know, Peter, in his message, says that essential to the gospel is also the presence of the Spirit in you. That this is not a, a, a superfluous add-on. This is not kind of a secondary bonus to overachievers. But the Spirit is essential and is immediately available to all who call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. That if you are saved, you experience the forgiveness of sins and the presence of the Spirit of God in you as an immediate action based upon the saving work of Jesus. 
Now, this is why in verse 33 it says, This promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. Meaning, this promise is available to the entire world. He probably here is speaking primarily to Jews in Jerusalem and to those scattered about. But we're going to see as you move through Acts that this promise extends to all Gentiles and to all peoples. Meaning the promise of God's salvation, that, that if you turn to him in repentance and you align yourself with Jesus and you trust him, that you'll experience the forgiveness of sins and you'll be filled with the Spirit, that promise is available to everyone if they will just simply trust him. So friends, let me ask you this question. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you cried out for help? Uh, you know, it's for me, it's interesting to think about hurricanes when they come. Anytime we see the, the, the footage of a hurricane that begins to ravage a, a, um, a coastal area, uh, you always see people that have an inability to save themselves, and there's always these videos somewhere along the way of someone who's standing on a rooftop begging for someone to come to the rescue. That's what it means to call out for help. It's to be one who says, I can't save myself. I'm in, I'm in dire straits. Would someone descend and drop down and lift me out of the flood, flood waters before I'm overcome? That's what it means to call out upon the Lord. And that's what we're doing. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, it's not through your theological acumen. It's not through uh, religious merit. It's not through your moral aptitude. It's not through good deeds. But it's through crying out and asking for a Savior to descend and lift you up when you can't lift yourself up. Uh, I watched a, a little clip from a guy named Alistair Begg. And he's got, a, if you know him, he's got this deep Scottish accent that I'm not even going to try to, to butcher. Uh, but he, he talked about those who, um, who are in need of salvation. And, and, and what, do we, what do we say when, when someone asks why, why it is that you're saved? If we begin with ourselves and say, well, I, we're already lost. But if we, if we begin with Jesus and say, well, Jesus, then there's hope for us. Because ultimately, when you think about where we are, when you, when you ultimately come to the, the place of judgment, when you ultimately come to the end and you begin to think about where you, how you make a defense for why it is that you should be in the presence of God and experience the gladness of that joy forevermore. You can maybe ask questions. What, what do you think you are doing here in the presence of the king? What's your answer? We're to, we're to say, Jesus invited me. When you're asked, what have you done to earn your way in? We're to say, Jesus bought my ticket. When we say, why should the Spirit of God come to you? You say, well, Jesus gave me that gift. When you asked, what hope do you have in the mess of your life? You say, I know the guy seated by the Almighty. When you're asked, why, what right do you have to enter heaven? You say boldly, Jesus said I could come. Do you see where your hope lies? Do you see why when you're cut to the heart, there's gladness that comes? your way? It's not because I, it's because Jesus. And that's ultimately the thing that gives us hope. We must preach Jesus to ourselves. Friends, if you ever take your eyes off Jesus and focus on yourself, you're going to move in a, in a dangerous direction. And your way, and what you deserve, and what you've earned, and what rights you possess, you're going to move in the way of discouragement. We have to learn to preach the good news to ourselves. 
But it's but Jesus said. But Jesus sent the Spirit. But Jesus invited me in. But Jesus made the way. But Jesus promised to deliver me. And the saying goes, this is not just the ABCs of the faith, it's the A to Z. So, friends, our call today is to do what Peter said. Uh, we're to repent and trust the Lord. And that simple pattern is the pattern we have for all of life. It's the initiatory rite of baptism that we repent and turn and trust Jesus through baptism. And it's what happens when we come to the communion table, that we repent of our own way and we come and we trust Jesus in his way as we remind ourselves of all that he's done. And it's interesting, how do they respond to Jesus here? It says in 3,000 were baptized and were added to the number. And we'll talk more about that next week. Uh, people have actually done the research uh, to figure out if there are enough pools for 3,000 people to be baptized in one day. But can you imagine the celebration that took place when the grace of God was on such display? Uh, may it be so in our lives as well. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that we would know your grace, that we would know uh, the, the, the finished work of Jesus on the cross, uh, the celebratory, victorious work of Jesus and his resurrection, the powerful work of Jesus and his exaltation to sit at your right hand. Father, might we also know the spirit, the gift of Jesus that fills us. Might we trust you in all of life. We pray it in Jesus' name, by your spirit. Amen.